Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Chris Connolly. And I'm Lainey Mays. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Above all, we love bringing librarians and great books together. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hi, welcome back to the podcast. This is Lainey, and we have another episode of Editors Unedited returning old pro now, um, Rachel Kahn, who is an executive editor at William Morrow, and I'm going to throw it over to her. Super excited to be back. This time I am here to talk about a major work of nonfiction. Usually you've heard me talk about my novelist authors. This book is, I have said this several times already, so I'll say it again, I think maybe the most important book that I have edited in the 20 years that I have been an editor, and that's not something that I say lightly. So this is a labor of love and a book that I feel is just hugely meaningful to me and I think to the world. The title is The Light of Days, The Untold Story of Women Resistance Fighters in Hitler's Ghettos. And it is the World War II story that you have not heard, the Jewish story you have not heard, and the women's story that you have not heard about how during the early days of the Holocaust and World War II, women in mainly in Polish Jewish youth groups found ways to use the connections of the youth groups to kind of weaponize them into hardened resistance cells. And these were amazing women who found many different ways to resist, to fight the Nazis, to escape, to hide families and save people. And it is a deeply researched book. It is fascinating and it is an incredibly compelling read. And it's a little bit difficult sometimes to talk about a book about the Holocaust as having an entertainment factor, but it is a really cinematic read. And I am not the only person who thinks that it has a cinematic quality. Not long after, I think it was about a week after I signed this book up for William Morrow, the film rights to it went in a major deal to Steven Spielberg and Amblin Entertainment. I am here with the author, Judy Battalion, who is extraordinary and who I have had such a wonderful experience working on, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. I'm going to let her talk about the origin story of this book, because you spent about 12 years researching this book, right? This project began over 12 years ago. I was living in London at the time, and I wanted to write a piece about strong Jewish women. And the woman that first came to mind was someone I had studied in fifth grade. Her name was Hannah Senesh, um, and she was a World War II paratrooper. She was Jewish. Uh, she was living in Palestine at the time, and she had joined the British resistance and was came to Europe um, to, to help fight the Nazis. She, unfortunately, could not accomplish her, her military mission. She was caught 
but the the legend or the I mean the truth the truthful story was she she looked the Nazis in the eye as they shot her and this image became she was in my in my youth the image of female courage of Jewish women's bravery um, the only woman who stood up to the Nazis like this that I've ever heard of. So I, I wanted to write about her, but I wanted to understand a bit more about who she really was, away from the kind of heroic narrative. What was her psychology? What was she like? How did she become this way? So I was living in London, um, and I went to the British Library, and I looked up Hannah Senesch in the catalog, and there were not very many books about her. Um, but I, uh, I ordered what there was. I picked up my stack. I went back to my desk. And I noticed that the book on the bottom was unusual. It was, you know, hardbacked and blue and had this worn fabric with actually gold lettering on the front. I opened it up. Uh, it was 200 pages of tiny script in Yiddish. Um, but I say, always say, even more unusual, I happen to speak Yiddish. Um, so I started flipping through this book looking for Hannah Senesch. But the chapter of Hannah Senesch of this 200-page book was just the last 10 pages. In front, I found 190 pages of other stories of other Jewish women, young Jewish women, who were fighting the Nazis. Uh, I mean, with pictures and names and title chapter titles like um, munitions, weapons, uh, the, the fight in the ghetto, the fight in the Vilna ghetto. And I, I was like, what is this? I had never heard anything like this. I'd heard so little about the Jewish underground at all, and certainly not women's role in the underground. And if I hadn't mentioned it, I should say that book, that Yiddish book that I found was from 1946. Um, so yeah, so this is where it all began. I decided to translate this Yiddish book. I, I got the um, support of the Hadassah Brandeis Institute, and they funded me originally for to translate this manuscript, and and it all began there. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit going back to you? You said you know, funnily enough, I speak Yiddish. Tell us where you learned to speak Yiddish. Um, and a little bit about your background, because I think you have a special connection to this book and this material. I, I, I do. Um, so I speak Yiddish from two different sources, believe it or not. So I grew up, speak, my family is a family of Holocaust survivors, and I was largely raised by my grandmother who spoke Yiddish. She had, she had survived um, in uh, Siberian camps, actually. And um, she, she really raised me on a day-to-day -day level, and she spoke to me in Yiddish. So I had a really, Yiddish was actually my first language. Um, and then I happened, even more strange, I happened to go to the only school, I believe, in North America, which is a, in Montreal, which is a Jewish, a secular Jewish school that taught Yiddish as a mandatory subject alongside Hebrew. So I had Yiddish classes every, I believe it was every day or five out of a six day cycle or something like that. We studied Yiddish literature, Yiddish grammar. Um, you know, I studied Yiddish, for my Yiddish exams and my physics exams. Um, Little did you know that they both would really come in handy I mean, all these years later. I knew Yiddish would be my cash cow. You know, that's... And I think that that's one of the things that I found fascinating when I first read the proposal for this book was that a lot of the source material has not been translated into English or sort of there might be very obscure versions of it in English. So you were uncovering this story of all of these women doing really extraordinary things 
within the framework of resistance um, during World War II. Why did we not know this story? Like why, and I know this might be a long answer, but what are the, what are the reasons that this book is such a revelation to a lot of people? I, I will try to answer it somewhat consistently. So I, I've thought about this a lot. I, I feel like as I researched these women's stories, I was also researching what happened to their stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I was interested in their lives and also so interested in why I didn't know about their lives. Um, so I think there are a number of reasons that these stories got buried. Some of them are political and some of them are personal. The political reasons, I would say, differ across countries and communities. So, you know, in Israel, they were building a country. Um, so the narratives of the Holocaust sort of were, were shaped by those that, that politics. In, in Poland, there was a Soviet occupation after the war. There was a fear of talking about um, allegiances during the war. So the narrative of the Holocaust was shaped by that. In the States here in the US, there was um, you know, the, a, a redefining of the Jewish community as the new kind of central Jewish community in the world. And again, the, 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 and people have written about this, the, the, the narrative of the Holocaust was shaped there too. So in, in many of these contexts, there was emerged this kind of myth of passivity of uh, Jews in the war. Um, which helped feed some of these narratives. So I just talked about how the reasons for not knowing this story were partially political and it has to do with how the narrative of the Holocaust developed in these different communities, but also personal and especially for women. Many of these women survivors did not tell their story or did not tell it publicly or until much later in life. Women, often they were not believed. They were accused of leaving their families to fight. They should have stayed and taken care of their parents. They were accused of sleeping their way to safety. Um, they were, um, they felt overwhelming survivor's guilt. Some of these women that I write about, they, they said, you know, compared to women in concentration camps, I had it easy. Uh, why should I tell my story? Um, even though they had been, I mean, I rem- I'm thinking of one particular account of a woman who was, I mean, in Bialystok, she, I mean, a weapon smuggler running a whole underground operation, created a group of anti-Nazi Nazis and would funnel weapons from them to Russian partisans in the forest. But she didn't want to tell her story because she felt that she'd had it easy compared to her fellow Jews. Um, women also felt this cosmic responsibility to mother the next generation of Jews. And they like badly wanted to create normal lives for their children and for themselves. Um, and I think for, for all these reasons, their stories just were suppressed and were repressed for, for, for a long time. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things that I found really heartening about this book is that I feel like um, in in certain quarters and for certain reasons, there has been this idea, um, I think Hannah Arendt is, is probably the most responsible for this, but this idea that the Jews of Europe went meekly to their deaths, that we did not fight back, that it was all um, it was all just kind of over and done with quickly, and then that plays into the Israeli belief of, 
you know, never again we must we must be this very strong nation that that kind of has is able to weaponize itself quickly in order to um, to ensure that we don't meet the same fate. And I think that um, the thing that I like about this book is it shows that even though the odds were overwhelming, the greatest armies of the world were fighting against Hitler, and it was the outcome was never really predetermined. There were Jewish groups that fought really successfully in some ways and um, with a lot of intention and a lot of heart and heroically. And I think, um, and that's both men and women, but in this book we're sort of focusing more on the women's story. I think what astonished me were some of the numbers. It's hard because compared to six million deaths, most numbers feel very small. But on the other hand, 30,000 Jews joined the forest partisans. Um, Over 90 ghettos had armed underground units, Jewish armed underground units. There were armed uprisings at at Auschwitz, Treblinka, Sobibor. Um, There was organizations in Warsaw alone that helped sustain through money, food, support, 10,000, roughly 10,000 Jews in hiding. So there's still big numbers, organizations and networks of Jews that you know, I can't. I can't believe I hadn't heard these stories before. There's enough of them that this whole narrative um, it stunned me and stunned me in in how in how big it was compared to what the story I had grown up with. Can you talk a little bit now about the why women made particularly right. good resistors? Because I loved oh. I love this part. Why they made good resistors and what were some of the things that they did that were so heroic? Women were particularly good at in in helping, in, especially in the organized movements and in the organized resistance, because women were able to go undercover. And I mean undercover as Catholic girls. So Jewish women were not circumcised. Men were circumcised. So when men would fail the what they called the pants drop test, if uh, a, a Nazi or um, a collaborator wanted to know if a man was Jewish or not, they would ask him to, they would order him to take his pants off. And, you know, the answer was so marked on his physique. Women did not have this. Women were, weren't nervous about a potential upcoming pants drop test. Women also, in a lot of cases, the family would spend the money or prioritize sending their sons to Jewish schools for Jewish educations. And often women were sent to public schools. Um, Public schools were, by the way, they were mandatory for women in in Poland's culture then. So a lot of these women went, they studied Polish, they were acculturated, they knew Polish language, literature, custom, they were familiar with, um, with the Catholic Poles, they had friends who were Catholic Poles, um, and uh, they didn't, and very important, they did not, they spoke Polish like a Pole. They, they, this, they write about this all the time. They did not have the creaky Jewish accent. So this was very important in being able to go undercover. And as undercover agents, they left the ghettos. They, you know, when I grew up, this story of the Holocaust, I, I couldn't even imagine that someone would have been able to get outside these confined areas where Jews were imprisoned, but these women, through a multitude of ways, climbing over walls and 
and and sneaking out with work groups and bribing guards left the ghettos and traveled throughout Poland connecting movements in various cities um, and supplying weapons, medication, information, um, uh, smuggling people, smuggling ammunition, um, organizing rescue missions, smuggling a lot of cash and delivering money. Um, and, you know, again, and as I said, weapons, you know, account and account about women who had guns taped to their torsos, you know, bits of guns because they had to make them small, like, the, you know, in designer handbags, mm-hmm. in... Um, with their grocery shopping. With, or... their, with food. It was rare at that time for men to be wandering in the streets during the day. Jewish men certainly, or Polish men as well. Everyone was at work or put to work or forced to work. Um, but women still went out to the cedar, went out shopping, went out for walks. But, I mean, I mean, non-Jewish women. But so these Jewish women um, pretended to be going to the theater. Um, they were the theater. They were performing the whole time. Um, and their memoirs and their accounts are filled with the, with the experience of performance, of acting a part, of acting the, the, this part with, with no intermission. Um, especially when they were on their missions. Mm-hmm. Did And I think one of the, the telling things about this, too, is that women are always seen as being essentially non-threatening. And so the Nazis, the Gestapo, just tended to overlook women in the way that they wouldn't the, with men. There are stories of, of these Jewish women who asked the Gestapo guards to carry their valise filled with contraband, mm-hmm. like batting an eyelash and, you know, a nice smile. And they were carrying the, the, the valises filled with these <laughs> illegal underground materials for them. One of the things that I found remarkable when you and I were kind of assembling all the primary sources that you were writing this book was you said to me, I found a couple dozen stories that you had originally conceived this as having sort of one central story, which was mainly about um, a woman named Renia who was uh, the subject. She wasn't the only subject, but in that original Yiddish book that you found, her story was the one that really leaped out at you. And I think we'd initially thought this would be like an ensemble cast of a few women, and then you discovered that there were so many of these stories um, as you did research. How did you decide which stories went into the book, which stories kind of wound up on the cutting room floor, and, and how do you deal with the responsibility of being the person who chooses which stories go into the book? Um, well, I gave a lot of that responsibility to you. That is, that <laughs> is true. What should I That's cut? True. I don't know what to cut. You there were, me. There were definitely times me. when I said this story could be shorter, or I said we... I, I, one <sighs> of the things that I, mean, I can speak to that, there were times when you and I talked about like, how many stories do we need about smuggling guns or bread or intelligence or that kind of thing? Because a lot of these women were doing the same things. We had yeah. to try and craft a narrative that was not, I think I remember saying this to you, like, is not just a compendium of the information. Um, because that's not something that a lay readership wants to read. Um, and I think that 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 definitely weighed heavily on me, especially when there were uh, 
women where we we knew there was a particular name and a particular story, I I would definitely feel a twinge of conscience about um, if we were going to cut that story. But I also felt that the women who we focused on, and and for people who haven't read this book, there is kind of a smallish ensemble cast. There's a handful of women whose stories we really follow throughout the narrative. And then there are other stories of women who they have contact with because these networks were primarily female. So there are there are a lot of, there's some big heroic stories and then there are some other stories throughout that um, are kind of the minor leagues of heroism, but they're all really striking. I think it was striking a balance between um, telling stories of women that did slightly different things. So some women that fought in the forest, some women that were couriers, some women that were at Auschwitz, and some women that were in the ghetto. So being able to show the scope of the activity at women who organized soup kitchens, women that made underground libraries, women that, you know, took care of children and orphans. And I, I talk about this at the beginning of the book. There's so many definitions of resistance. Um, and so I did try to show, it was very important to show the breadth of this activity. Um, that was very important to me because I didn't I didn't want to focus it too much on one or two characters because this was this felt bigger than that. At the same time, I wanted to have characters that we were interested in and engaged in, and you know, we want to know what happened to them. So it was a balancing act that at time you know that was that was very hard. It was a, you know a, a hard a hard line to walk, um, and I think also it had to do with storytelling and finding focusing on women who I thought had really robust, dramatic stories. People who often were more writerly ended up having longer sections in this book as well because I, I, I was able to, to you know, feel their story through, through their own writing. Right. They left a long written... Some of these women wrote their memoirs and really gave you very detailed information. When I first started this project, I thought I came to from this Yiddish book, Freund and the Ghettos, that I talked about, that I thought that was it, an anthology of bits of writing about all these different women. And before I even came to you, Rachel, was it enough? Would I be able to pull together a full nonfiction book? Um, and we decided, okay, I think so. I think. And then as soon as I started working on this, it was like, oh my God, there's too much. I found accounts and accounts, and accounts had been published, Books have been published here in the U.S. as well. I mean, they're always small presses or museum publications, um, so they're not in in the in the field of where a wide readership would find them. But these stories exist. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about Renya, who, to the extent that this book has a main character or a singular heroine, she is our heroine. She kind of is the skeleton of the story. She is. She's she the every woman. It. Yes, yeah. she's the every woman, and I I was attracted to her because she was the every woman. Mm -hmm. Some of these women are. They were leaders of their youth movements. They were very political. They were, very, you know, she wasn't. She was a teenager who came from a, you know, she was educated and had a, a big family and middle class life, and her world fell apart. And she was 15 years old when this book began. When begins. this book began, yes. Mm -hmm. And she herself um, 
and records her her experience. She wrote she wrote her down her experience the first time when she was nineteen twenty in that range with even with you know really descriptive prose and this kind of even keeled tone and even wit. Um, and I was very drawn to that. And I mean, she realized her family realized they had to run. And they left the ghetto, and she was sent off by herself. Uh, the family split up, and thus began her years of, of as her book in Hebrew. The original is called the, uh, the Wanderings, Underground Wanderings, and uh, she first, you know, tried to survive by herself, uh, running through Poland in disguise as a Catholic girl. She then met up with her older sister, um, who was part of the underground, and became herself a courier what they called a courier girl, doing missions between Warsaw and this town in the southwest called Bajin, um, and smuggling cash and weapons and people between these um, locations. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the things that, that we had talked about is she doesn't have nece necessarily, she's, she's not the girl who blew up a Nazi train, and there we talk about that woman in the book, and she didn't take up a gun and fight with the partisans, although we talk about those women. But I think the thing that I found the most moving about her story was that I could truly imagine what might happen if that were me and my entire world was just completely turned upside down. How do you struggle to create a whole new identity for yourself where you can deal with this fact and um, later on in the story and this is there are some spoilers here but it, you'll enjoy them she winds up being uh, in a Gestapo prison which she manages to escape from and she manages to escape from Nazi occupied Poland um, so to the extent that anyone has a happy ending in the story Renia has the happy ending um, and she takes uh, the women in her circle, each of them has a different story and a different take, and some of them survive and some of them do not. Um, but Renia is is kind of the every woman figure who um, I feel like as as a female reader, everyone will identify with. I mean, I was I, I found her story first in the Yiddish book at the British mm -hmm. Library, and of all, it was the longest story. So, bit in that book and I was meet when as soon as I sat down and tried to think about how I would at all structure this book I immediately said she's she's the one who was in my mind it was all her stories and her perspective and her vision so when you so first you had this mountain of archival material which much of which had to be translated and so that's years of work you really worked on that for years right I mean I mean, not full-time, but yes, I worked on the original translation um, over, over, I mean, like seven years or something, mm -hmm. on and off, and yeah. And then tell me about the process of um, trying to find family members, because many of these women did have children and grandchildren. Um, you went to Israel, you went to Poland. Tell me a little bit about the research where you actually got to meet live okay. people. So first of all, actually, here... <laughs> Let me rewind and say a little bit about finding these women. So mm -hmm. when I found Renya's story in Freund's Ghettos, she didn't even sign her last name. It just said Renya Kuf in, in, in Yiddish Kuf, uh, like a K. 
That's all I knew. This was in Yiddish. So then how all these names that I first found were in Yiddish, written in Hebrew characters, um, and many of these women did not, several of the women, I should say, did not use last names. This was for security reasons. They were writing this in 44, 45. Many of them were writing in hiding. They were writing on the run. They were writing... It, the war was still on. They they were afraid of writing about resistance activities. They were afraid of giving away names. So many of them also had many names. They had their birth name in Polish, in Yiddish, in Hebrew. They had like 25 nicknames, especially in Yiddish, like Renya, Rivka, Rifchu, Rivchu. They had um, their surname in Hebrew, in Yiddish, in Polish. They then had these wartime aliases or, or nom de guerres that they went by because they had fake IDs. And some people are known even today, like they published under their fake names that they used during the war. They then, to escape from Europe, often to go to Israel or America or wherever they went, it was easier if they were married. So they would pretend to be married. So they had these fake married names. And, and then they would get to the new country and they would often get married, so they have a new married name, and then they would change their names to uh, uh, fit with, you know, the... the to sound American, to sound American or, Israeli. or Israeli. Right. So these names are complicated. I would spend a full day, a full day, trying to figure out if Astrid was the same as Astrid, was the same as Esterit, was the same as Zosha, was the same... And I would have to cross-reference, and I... This is like the early part of my work was I'd write a story about Astrid, and then I was like, wait a minute, 40 pages earlier, there was an Esterit in the same, it, was that the same person? And I would have to go back and, and try it was, to figure out. right? Yes, in that case, it was. But the, the level of detail and trying to, um, dealing with all these names was so complicated. Just yes. to try, just to track that it down. That was just to track there. it down. That's before right. even starting gathering documents or the research or the contextual research or figuring out how to put together. Right, the story. because you might you you knew who they were, but you didn't know their names necessarily. Yes. So okay. Yes. Um, and then once you managed to get kind of a toehold and identified them, tell me about how you spoke to their families because all of the women who you wrote about for the most part have since died. Um, so then you went where when you were looking to kind of follow up their stories? So in the end, because I had so many stories, I chose to primarily uh, focus on the stories that were focused on in the initial Yiddish book, stories of women from a particular Zionist youth groups. So a lot of them ended up in Israel. Um, so I did go to Israel to speak with a lot of their families. There are some here in North America as well, and I traveled to speak with them too. Um, but I, I spent 10 days in Israel really sitting and doing some archival work as well, but also doing a lot of living room work, I call it, and sitting with their families and listening to their stories and the stories of who, I mean, who these women were, that's what I wanted to understand from their families. Because the experiences that are described in the book is them when they were really young, I mean, in their teens and mm -hmm. maybe early 20s. Um, and then you show up in, their, in the living room of a child or grandchild, and they, in some cases, I think, didn't even know 
the full story of what their mom or grandma had done. Like they might not have read that memoir that you read. They didn't see that archival information. I mean, Renya's family knew about her book. They did not know there was an English version published in the 40s. They did not know about several bits of writing she did for other memorial books. They did not know about archives that held various testimonies that she gave that I found. I sent them information about her. And this comes back to the question of these women, especially with their children, they were more open with their grandchildren, but with their own children. And, and people have, have written about this. They, they, did, they tried to create a normal life for their children. And, and there was, you know, people talk about this kind of double wall of silence between the Holocaust survivor and their children. They didn't want to trouble their children, and the children didn't want to trouble them or ask them and everyone was trying to hold it together and create some kind of happy life Mm -hmm. or functional life what are their thoughts on the book and like what were like overwhelmingly pretty much like this is so great or was anyone a little taken back about like getting the story right what what were their reactions so overwhelmingly people were very uh positive Mm -hmm. and very grateful i mean someone just wrote me I was quote checking recently and actually it makes me like cry he mm. just wrote me it was a bit of he wrote me like thank you very much for writing about my mother and it, it just felt like I actually was very touched by that it sounds so mm-hmm. simple but mm. like they felt like what's going to happen to this story like they themselves some of them try to you know write some articles or do, but they're not necessarily professional writers or scholars mm-hmm. um, so generally I found a lot of gratitude um, some people were nervous some people it depends what family and how and you know some people some families were a bit more concerned about the image of uh, of their now deceased relatives um, and that has to do with how some of them were more well known in Israeli culture not here but right. there so th- those families were a little more private or at least a little more cautious um, but by and large people were very giving I mean, I could listen all day. Like, I was yeah. on the edge of my seat, like, and then what happened? And then what happened? I know, <laughs> I'm trying to your take research, Like, even just your research process, I can't even imagine, like, getting small wins for the day of, like, I found out this person's name or I found a, a tidbit of someone's name. You know, the main area that I write about at the time was called Jeglembie. I mean, try finding that in English search engines. It would take, I'd be at the YIVO, the Center for Jewish History Library, like three librarians were with me, like trying to figure out how to, is it a Y and then an I, or then an I and then a Y, because or then Because the a place names are either German or Polish or Yiddish. It was, and, a, and they referred to them in a mix, and even we've been working on the maps, it's like, well, what name, do we use the German name or the right. Yiddish name? Or, you know, I call the town Bejin because that's how it's pronounced now. But if you if you had a grandparent from there, they probably call it Benden, because that's the Yiddish pronunciation. Um, so all these things are really made the research very complicated. Um, then I was like, oh, maybe that's another reason why no one's told this story. <laughs> it's so hard. It's true. The only thing before we close that I want to point out is that you were at ALA Midwinter and you spoke at the the UFLT and just did such an amazing job and I want to point everyone to go watch the video because we recorded it so um, that will be 
in the notes of this episode. I'll, I'll direct you there, but I just want to make sure you guys can hear that too. No, and I think, you know, to say, as I said at the top, as the editor of this book, that I feel that it's this incredibly important work. I think there's a lot of things in here. There's history, there's scholarship, there's an amazing story that in some ways reads like an adventure story. And it really is this tremendous 20th century history that people don't know. And it comes across as such a revelation. So I'm very excited to bring that to the world. And um, I just feel very privileged to have been a part of that. Thank you for bringing it to the world. And I feel privileged to have been so supported. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week. Thank you.